let's go ahead and get started. Uh, we are on page three of your handout. Uh, so if you remember from a couple weeks ago, we began looking at martyrdom within the uh, early church period. And uh, last, last time we considered the persecution that took place during the Apostolic Church, which was uh, 33 to 70 A.D. So this is that time period in which Scripture uh, speaks of the persecutions within the church. And most of the persecution at this time came from uh, the Jewish councils, uh, so it was the Jews who were actively uh, pursuing and persecuting Christians, but as time went on, uh, the Roman government began to get more and more hostile towards the Christian faith as well, and uh, we began to see widespread persecution of Christians in the latter part of this period, specifically under the reign of Emperor Nero. Um, today we are going to look at the next stage of this era of church history, which is the infant church from 70 AD to 313 AD. Uh, so from the fall of the temple in Jerusalem to uh, the uh, the allowance of Christianity uh, to be practiced within the Roman Empire. So we're looking at that period of time uh, known as the infant church. So before we get started, uh, Richard, can I get you to open us in prayer? So, uh, persecution in the infant church uh, really began to be heightened under the reign of Emperor Domitian. Uh, and this was between the years of 81 to 96 AD. Um, and he formed what, what can be called an imperial cult. Uh, he attributed to himself uh, this title Dominus et Deus, uh, which is, um, of course, Latin, meaning Lord and God. So 
Domitian is attributing to himself the title Lord and God. Um, you can understand why the Christians would be upset about this, right? You know, the Christians are not going to uh, refer to the emperor as Lord and God. They're going to be uh, against this. They're not going to submit to it. Uh, and so they were referred to, or, or they were they were the nonconformists. The Christians were the nonconformists. And uh, the Romans would refer to them as atheists. Now that sounds weird to us that the Christians were called atheists. But why, why were the Christians called atheists by the Romans? Because they didn't believe in the Roman gods. Because to a Roman, the only gods there were were the Roman gods. And if you denied them, then you were an atheist. You didn't believe in God. Uh, but we know that that's not... That's not true. We know that uh, there is only one true God. And uh, the Christians were the true theists. And uh, in actuality, the, the Romans were, um, in, in one sense, an the, the true atheists because they denied the reality of the one true God. It is, it is interesting that... Uh, at this time, Christians were called atheists. Now, what we see during this time is uh, persecution continuing within the church. Uh, we read in the book of Revelation the, the letters that were written to the churches in Asia Minor. Now, you may be thinking, Josh, why are you saying this? Wasn't Revelation written before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D.? I mean, if you're a preterist or a partial preterist, then you may be inclined to think that. Uh, but the, the evidence seems clear that uh, the book of Revelation was actually written probably around 90 to 95 A.D., um, and, and we have this evidence because uh, you, you remember who Irenaeus is, right? Irenaeus was the disciple of Polycarp. And who was Polycarp the disciple of? John. Who wrote the book of Revelation? John. Okay, so... We have Irenaeus, who is a second-generation disciple of John, essentially, who is writing in one of his tractates and says that John, the, the revelation written by John was written during the end, or during, yeah, during the end of the reign of Domitian. And... Irenaeus actually says it was written almost within my lifetime. Irenaeus was born uh, probably around 100 or so. 
So we have a man who was the disciple of the disciple of John who actually wrote Revelation, who's saying that Revelation was written at the end of the reign of Domitian, which Domitian's reign ended in 96 AD. Uh, his reign didn't even begin until 81 AD. So if it was written any time during the reign of Domitian, it was written after the fall of Jerusalem. So when we're considering the persecution that's written of uh, in the book of Revelation, in the letters to the churches of Asia Minor, uh, we can consider that as part of the persecution during the infant church and not during the apostolic church. Does that make sense? All right, can I get someone to read Revelation chapter 2 and verses 10 through 13? And then someone else be ready with chapter 3 and verses 10 and 12. Yeah, 10 to 13. So here we we see um, this, these are two different letters. So verse verses ten and eleven are part of the letter to the church at uh, Smyrna, and uh, we see there that uh, they are suffering. That Satan is casting some into prison. Uh, that they are facing tribulation, that, that they are even having to be faithful unto death. So we see there that there is persecution uh, in the church in Smyrna. Um, and notice there, like what we said last week, that persecution uh, is carried out by humans, by human agents but also is uh, orchestrated by Satan. It has a demonic origin uh, because it's, it's the devil who is doing these things according to this letter, even though we know that it's people who are actually um, carrying them out. And then verses 12 and 13 is uh, a letter to the church at Pergamos. And uh, we see here that they are being encouraged to hold fast to the name and to not deny the faith. And we read of this martyr of the church in Pergamos, uh, Antipas, who was slain because of his faith in Christ. So we see there in these two examples of 
Smyrna and Pergamos that there is persecution uh, taking place within these churches. Someone have uh, chapter 3, verses 10 and 13, or 10 and 12, I mean. Because thou hast kept that word of my patience, I will also keep thee waver from the hour of temptation, which shall come up upon all the world, to try them as well upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly, hold the fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of the heavens of my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Alright, so here we have another letter to one of the churches in Asia. Uh, and this is to the church at Philadelphia. Um, and here is the encouragement given to the saints in Philadelphia to have patience, to hold fast, to keep the Word of God, and to overcome. These are all terms used in relation to facing persecution and, and holding onto the faith of Christ in the midst of persecution. So we see here in these two, uh, two passages that persecution is a real thing within this time period, and we even have biblical record of it here in the book of Revelation. In uh, Domitian, he was, he was a brutal ruler his his persecution of christians is known to be very violent uh very ruthless um and and he went he went down in history as a wicked wicked ruler um and one of the one of the great enemies the great adversaries of the christian faith Following Domitian was uh, the Emperor Trajan, and uh, persecution continued under him. His reign lasted from 97 to 112 AD. And uh, we have in the historical record what's known as the Trajan Pliny Correspondence. Basically, it's letters that uh, Trajan and Pliny wrote to one another. And in it, uh, they speak of the persecution of Christians. Um, Pliny writes, The accused held that their only crime or error had been this. On a certain day, they used to gather before sunrise and recite by turns a liturgy to Christ as to a God. They bound themselves by an oath, not for criminal purposes, but swearing not to commit theft, robbery, or adultery, never to break their promises, and always to return property to them when it was demanded. So I adjourned the case and referred it to you. Many are threatened, for many people of every rank, both men and women, are in danger now and in the future of embracing this superstition. Its infection has penetrated both cities and villages, and the countryside. So Pliny, who was an elder 
within the Roman society. He was a, a judge of sorts. Uh, refused to um, rule on the matter of Christians who were being brought before him accused of, of violating Roman law. And he instead sent it to Trajan and Trajan's response was essentially, don't ask, don't tell. Basically, let the Christians do their thing in secret, but it better be kept in secret. It can't be brought out in the public. And what you don't know won't hurt you. So that was, that was what Trajan... Uh, set forth as the policy during his time. But, you know, Christians tend not to stay in the, in the dark. They tend to bring their religion into the light. And as a result of that, they were charged for crimes against the Roman Empire, and they were killed for their faith. Uh, Tertullian writes, What a necessarily confused sentence. It refuses to seek them out as if they were innocent and orders that they be punished as if they are guilty. It pardons, yet it is cruel. It ignores and yet punishes. You see the duplicitous nature of, of Trajan's ruling. You know, we're not, we're not going to seek them out. We're going to let them do their thing. But yet, when we find out that they're doing their thing, we're going to kill them. It's very duplicitous. It's very two-faced. Uh, and that's what Tertullian is, is highlighting. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch writes in his epistle to the Romans, For if ye are silent concerning me, I shall become gods. But if ye show your love to my flesh, I shall again have to run my race. Pray then, do not seek to confer any greater favor upon me than, I, than, that, I than that I be sacrificed to God while the altar is still prepared. That being gathered together in love, ye may sing praise to the Father through Christ Jesus that God has deemed me, the bishop of Syria, worthy to be sent for from the east unto the west and to become a martyr in behalf of his own precious sufferings, so as to pass from the world to God, that I may rise again unto him. Here we have Ignatius of Antioch saying, uh, we're called to not hide in the shadows. And I'm going to be public. And you don't, you don't worry about me because this is what the Lord has called us to do. To live out our faith, no matter the cost. And what a great honor is it for me to be captured by the government and to be martyred for the sake of Christ Jesus. Friends, that is bold faith. That's a faith that I'm not sure every one of us would have. 
that's a faith that the majority of professing Christians would not have. But he is boldly saying, if I must die for my proclamation of faith in Christ, then so be it. Someone read for me Philippians 1, 21-26. And then someone else go ahead and get ready. 2 Timothy 4, 6-8. through Are you are you in the right spot? Philippians one twenty one. Here we read in this letter of the Apostle Paul this struggle, this desire to be with the Lord, but also this recognition that the Lord still has work for him to do here on this earth. And that's what Ignatius is highlighting. He's essentially saying, as long as I am to be here on this earth, I'm going to do it boldly and openly for Christ. But my desire, my longing is to be with Him. And if that means that I go before the magistrate and get executed for my faith, then so be it. We're seeing in in the spirit of Ignatius the spirit of Paul being reflected. Who has the Second Timothy passage? I'll read it. For I am now ready to be offered in the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearance. So this is a letter written later in Paul's life. And he is writing to uh, his son in the faith, Timothy, that he is ready to be offered. Basically saying, I'm ready for whatever may come my way. I'm ready to be offered up as a sacrifice if I need to be. Because I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. And I have kept the faith. 
once again, we see that same mentality uh, being expressed in those words of Ignatius. And may we all be willing to have that kind of faith, that kind of boldness, that kind of courage as we face uh, persecutions in our lifetime as well. Uh, Ignatius goes on to write in his epistle to the Romans, let fire and the cross, let the crowds of wild beasts, let tearings, breakings, and dislocations of bones, let cutting off of members, let shatterings of the whole body, and let all the dreadful torments of the devil come upon me. Only let me attain to Jesus Christ. This man knew in graphic detail what horrors awaited him. And he said, let it come my way. Let it come upon me. Only let me attain to Jesus Christ. Let all those things come upon me. Let me suffer all these things. Because in the end, I get Christ. And the glory of being with Christ far outweighs any present suffering that I could ever experience. What a bold faith. Why were men like Ignatius willing to face martyrdom in such a, a bold way? Well, there were several different reasons for this. So let's take a moment to look at the rationale of martyrdom. One of the reasons is for the imitation of Christ's sufferings. Ignatius writes, Permit me to be an imitator of the passion of my God. We read in Scripture that we are made partakers in Christ's sufferings. And this is a real way in which that plays out. That we are imitators of Christ's sufferings. We are made partakers of Christ's sufferings. We face similar uh, consequences in this life that Christ faced. Uh, and so we see Ignatius saying, you know, one of the reasons I'm willing to do this, I'm, 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 I'm open to whatever may come my way, is so that I may be an imitator of the passion of my God. Uh, we also see he uh, gives the reason that he is to be a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Not, not a sacrifice of atonement, but a sacrifice of thanksgiving unto the Lord. Suffer me to become food for the wild beasts through whose instrumentality it will be granted me to attain to God. I am the wheat of God. I am ground by the teeth of the wild beasts that I may be found the pure bread of God. Entreat the Lord for me 
that by these instruments I may be found a sacrifice to God. Now he's using he's using biblical imagery here, so you need to know what he's speaking of. The grain offering given in the Old Testament was never an offering of atonement because without the shedding of blood, there cannot be the remission of sins. So the, the sacrifice of atonement was always to be a spotless lamb that was slain for the sins of the people. But the people were to give a grain offering as well, which was an offering of thanksgiving, a sacrifice of thanksgiving unto the Lord for the bounty, the blessings that He has given them. So the imagery that He's using here is that of being a grain offering given unto the Lord, a thank offering. And, and what He's saying is, Lord, You have given me everything. You have given me life. You have given me faith. You have given me purpose. You have given me eternity. And I am so thankful for everything that You have given me that I'm willing to sacrifice everything to show my gratitude towards You. I'm willing to present my body as a living sacrifice. Even if that means that it is presented as a dead sacrifice. A sacrifice that is ultimately killed. He says that martyrdom uh, expresses or shows forth a renunciation of the world. All the pleasures of the world and all the kingdoms of this earth shall profit me nothing. It is better for me to die in behalf of Jesus Christ than to reign over all the ends of the earth. For what shall a man be profited if he gain the whole world but lose his own soul? He's saying that in martyrdom, you are showing that your hope, your security is not found in the things of this world. It's not found in the riches or the pleasures or, or the prophets or, or the uh, positions of authority, but that your rest, your security, your hope is found only in Christ Jesus. And all of those other things can be stripped away. And the ultimate stripping away of all these worldly things is to be taken from this world. All those things can be stripped away. And you have still gained more than the richest man on this planet because you have the eternal treasure of Christ Jesus as your Lord. He says that martyrdom is a proof of discipleship. Rather, entice the wild beasts that they may become my tomb and may leave nothing of my body. Then shall I be a true disciple of Jesus Christ when the world shall not see so much as my body. 
Now, you have to be careful. He's not saying in order for you to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ, you have to be martyred. But what he's saying is that you as a true disciple of Jesus Christ ought to be willing to follow Him wherever that may lead, even if it leads to your death. Because a disciple always follows his master. And if you are a true disciple of Christ, then you are to follow him in that way. Uh, he says that it is uh, it comes from a longing to be with Christ. We already mentioned this. This desire to be with Christ. Do not wish to keep me in a state of death. For life without Christ is death. He would rather face death than be without Christ. Because a life without Christ is a punishment far worse than death. Uh, there were some uh, who had a sense of calling to martyrdom by the Spirit. They believed that the Lord was calling them to be martyred, uh, martyred for the faith. Ignatius was one of these who believed this, and this was a very popular thing during the early church. You see in many writings that some of these early Christians are saying that they believe the Lord is calling them to die the martyr's death. And then, uh, and this is one that is interesting, uh, Ignatius in his epistle to the Smyrnaeans, which are those within Smyrna, uh, he, he writes that martyrdom is an apologetic against docetism. He writes, he suffered truly, even as also he truly raised up himself, not as certain unbelievers maintain that he only seemed to suffer, as they themselves only seem to be Christians. And as they believe, so shall it happen unto them, when they shall be divested of their bodies and be mere evil spirits. But if these things were not done by our Lord only in appearance, then am I also only in appearance bound? And why have I also surrendered myself to death? to fire, to the sword, to the wild beasts. I undergo all these things that I may suffer together with Him who became a perfect man inwardly, strengthening me. Docetism is that belief that Christ did not really take on a physical body and, and face physical sufferings, but that it was essentially an illusion that he merely he, he had the appearance of suffering but he didn't really suffer and Ignatius is saying that if Christ only had the appearance of suffering then you will only have the appearance of suffering and you will only have the appearance of being a Christian you won't have the real thing. But if Christ truly suffered, 
then you too will truly suffer because you too can be truly a Christian. You know, the, the Christian faith hinges on the fact that Christ really suffered and died for our sins. And he's saying that his willingness to be given up as a martyr for this faith testifies to the fact that Christ Jesus willingly gave himself up to purchase this faith. Uh, continuing on, we read of the persecution under Ant Antonius Pius, uh, which was... 138 to 161 AD. And here we do have uh, the, the persecution of Polycarp, uh, who we read that for 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no evil. How could I curse my king who saved me? Those were the, those were the dying words of Polycarp. Um, he died a martyr at 86 years old, dying for the faith of Christ, whom he says from his very beginning, 86 years ago, he died at 86. So he's saying from an infant, I've served Christ and I've done it faithfully and he's never done me wrong. Why would I ever say anything bad about my God. Uh, there were those who actually volunteered for martyrdom under uh, the persecution of Antonius Pius. We, we read in the, in the martyrdom of Polycarp, now one named Quintus, a Phrygian who was but lately come to Phrygia, or Phrygia when he saw the wild beasts became afraid. This was the man who forced himself and some others to come forward voluntarily for trial. Him, the, the proconsul, after many entreaties, persuaded to swear and to offer sacrifice. Wherefore, brethren, we do not commend those who give themselves up to suffering, seeing the gospel does not teach so to do. You remember uh, I mentioned last time that there was there's this, this distinction that we have to make between uh, a, a, a spirit of martyrdom and a martyr complex. That we need to have the spirit of being willing to die for our faith, but not go out and seek persecution intentionally. Here we're seeing an example of that martyr complex where these people were willingly seeking out martyrdom and we see here that this man Quintus, he, he forced himself and convinced others to come forward voluntarily for trial. And then when he was put into, uh, into his, his punishment, when he was 
face to face with those wild beasts that were going to tear him apart, he became scared and started begging the Roman officials to let him go and and convince them that, that he would he would offer the sacrifice that was required of him, that he would swear allegiance unto the Roman Empire. This was a man who didn't have the spirit of martyrdom because he didn't have the boldness of the faith. And when he was put into the situation because he, he had this martyr complex thinking that he should go and, and be presented as a martyr, when he was put into the situation, he was proved to not even be a true Christian. He forsook the faith. And he paid tribute unto the emperor and sacrificed unto false gods. This is a man who caved under pressure because he had no foundation. Continuing on, persecution under Marcus Aurelius from 161 to 180 A.D. Uh, there were a series of events that happened during the Roman Empire that were tempestuous, that caused issues within the empire. And the Christians were blamed for these things because according to the Romans, they angered the gods. And so uh, persecution began uh, in an attempt to appease the gods, to to do away with these people who had angered them, and here we we see um, one of the most famous martyrs of the Christian faith being killed, and that is Justin Martyr, who was ki killed by beheading. But we also see this group of people called the Martyrs of Lyons, or the Martyrs, Martyrs of Lyons, uh, in 177. Now, if you remember, uh, Lyon, or Lyons, um, was a, a town, a village in Gaul, which was modern-day France, uh, but it was still part of the Roman Empire. And uh, there was mass persecution that took place there in Lyon. Uh, we read that the severity of our trials here, the unbridled fury of the heathen against God's people, the untold sufferings of the blessed martyrs, we are incapable of describing in detail. Indeed, no pen could do them justice. The atrocities that were committed there in Lyon were so violent, so widespread, so furious that words could not even describe it. That's what it means when no pen could do them justice. You know, we, we think about the most atrocious things that happened in our history. We think of something like the Holocaust. And, you know, historians have tried to explain the horrors that were uh, experienced there in those concentration camps and the uh, atrocities that were committed. 
but every one of those historians ends up saying, but words can never do this justice. That's what we're seeing here. It is that level of an atrocity that it was so wicked, so violent, that words can't even begin to describe it. Included in the martyrs of Lyon are um, three who were very uh, famous. Uh, the first is Pothinus, who was the Bishop of Lyon. And he was martyred at 90 years old. 90 years old. But then there were very young who were martyred here as well. Ponticus was a young man who was martyred at 15 years old. And the same thing with Blandina. She was a young woman who was martyred at 15 years old. How many 15-year-olds do you know who are willing to be killed for their faith in Christ? We ought to look at these people and their boldness, their courage, and, and, and be, first of all, shamed of our own weakness, but we ought to be encouraged to exhibit such boldness as well. Um, I'm going to stop there because we don't have time to finish through this section. So we'll we'll finish this out next week and maybe begin on the next section, which is persecution in the imperial church. But I hope what you're seeing here in 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 this lesson is what the church went through in those early years in order to give us what we have today. You know, they were dealing with persecution from government officials. They're also dealing with heresies within the church. Remember those two paradigms that we're looking at this church history from. Internal pressures and external pressures. The internal pressures for those heresies that were uh, arising within the church that were causing problems within the church, threatening the vitality and ministry of the church. But then the external pressures are those like what we've read about today. Of the wickedness of the heathen who were doing everything they could under the influence of Satan to see the church of Christ destroyed. We ought to praise God for how he preserved his church through such trials. And we ought to never think that the church will ever be destroyed because look at what it's gone through. I doubt we will ever face, uh, and I'm not just saying we, I'm saying the church in general. I doubt that the church in general will ever face the kind of of concerted effort and persecution towards seeing its destruction 
like what it saw in the early church period. I doubt that we will ever see that again. Yes, there will be persecution that comes. Yes, there will be that little season where the Antichrist is able to make a return and deceive people and draw them away once again. But I doubt we will ever see this wide-scale, all-out assault against the church ever again. And we ought to praise God for that. Because He's preserving us, and He has preserved us, and He will preserve us. Because as we'll see in our afternoon sermon uh, today, Christ Jesus is building His church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Any questions or comments? Okay. Isaac, can I get you to close us in prayer? Father, we thank you for allowing us to start your day uh, right, even if it's a little late. But we thank you for, uh, for your word. We thank you for uh, the teaching that you have given us in, in the form of our pastor. Thank you for our brethren. We thank you for the love that we are uh, striving to, to uh, give one another. So we pray that the rest of this day will be uh, um, a good sacrifice to you, that it will be uh, a, a, a good aroma to you, and that throughout uh, it all, we will seek you in conversations and um, love one another and submit to your word and uh, learn uh, of your knowledge. Um, we pray for, uh, for all of these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.